It's the Ride All Night Podcast, with stories of friends and family of the band From Good Homes, started during the pandemic of 2020 and continuing until we're done. Thank you, we're trying some new things here. Okay, here it comes. We've got a million people to thank. Welcome to the Ride All Night Podcast. It's Saturday, August 8th, and the madness continues. The pandemic is spiking around the country, and as we draw nearer to the November election, our divisive politics have truly gone postal. The never-ending conflict and tensions is making it very difficult to live in blissful denial, which is the goal of this podcast, Blissful Denial, that should perhaps be the name. But it isn't the name. This is the Ride All Night podcast, where we celebrate the music of From Good Homes by sharing stories with our extended musical family. And today we speak with Mike Weaver. Yes, Mike Weaver from way back in the early days. Mike was a member of the second musical manifestation that would eventually become From Good Homes. First, there was Rare Breed, and then Old Crow, and Mike played keyboards for Old Crow. And in the mid-80s, Mike played in a duo with Todd Schaefer. I tracked down Mike in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he lives with his wife and still works as a professional musician. Over the decades, he has mastered his use of MIDI technology and performs as a one-man band playing guitar and singing over complex MIDI arrangements under the name Mike Weaver's Live Jukebox. He also produces and engineers out of his home studio, Mountain Way Productions, teaches piano, and has had a lot of very cool musical experiences since his days back in Sussex County. I found Mike online and had to listen to some of his voiceover work, and as soon as I heard that stuff, I was transported back to the speakeasy back in Sparta, New Jersey, and I could hear Mike's piano backing up Scott Reimer on a soulful rendition of Riders on the Storm. I hope you enjoy this stroll down memory lane with Mike Weaver. Can you hear me now? Now I can hear you. All right. How you doing, man? <laughs> How are you? All right. It's really crazy to see you. How are you doing? You know, it's funny. I was just cruising around your websites and I listened to some of the voice talent tracks. I'm like, oh yeah, I could, when I heard your voice, I, I totally uh, recollect the times back when you were that old. Oh my God. <laughs> Look at that thing. That's classic. Um, so yeah, if we could start, just introduce yourself and tell, tell us where you are and what you, what you do out wherever you are. All right, man. Well, uh, you know, my name is Mike Weaver and, uh, I've been living out in Albuquerque here for, I think it's been 17 years. It'll be 17 years this summer. Moved out here uh, after my 40th birthday. And uh, I'm uh, lucky enough to still be a full-time musician. I have a, a small but mighty recording studio on the second floor of my home called Mountain Way Productions. Everything's like really high-end top shelf gear, but not you're not going to find your $10,000 microphones and your $20,000 preamps. So my tagline is, if that's what's holding you back, I'm not your guy. But everything else, come on in for it, you know. We try to make people real comfortable and uh, keep the price down because it's, it's uh, you know, in my home, I'm not having to pay storefront rent and that kind of stuff. So the idea, mission statement was really to try to give people a chance to come in and create and take a little extra time to get things right, you know. I mean, so many of us have spent our whole careers going in to record things and just feeling that clock just draining your money away and having to make the the... the the best of two bad decisions in order to get the hell out, you know? And so the whole idea here is to make it, uh, make the price point cheap enough and to kind of um, give people the creative space and comfort that they have so that they can come in and do the extra, the extra track, you know, make things sound the way they really want, double the vocals, all the things that you do on professional recordings that most people don't really have the, the financial resources to do. So you do music. I also saw, and that, that was fun for me to see on your website. You do also do voice, voice talent. Is that, do you do a lot of that or is that something, when did you get into that? Last spring, actually, I took a big plunge 
to try to you know uh, solicit it through a, a voice one two three, which is a big uh, sort of well, clearinghouse website for for voice talent. Um, yeah, with moderate success. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things where I think if you have an in, it helps a lot. I figure if I can, when the studio is dark, do a little bit of that on the side. It's a nice way to you know augment the the revenue. Totally. And I still uh, teach. I teach piano mm-hmm. and uh, and guitar. Uh, carry about 15 students a week generally uh, wow. during COVID it's a little weird yeah it's tough now right now because I can't uh, teach them in person so a lot of them still do zoom lessons yeah uh, which boy I'll tell you for people who think that uh, teaching uh, you know the, the, taking video lessons is anything close to taking in-person lessons I it's it's not <laughs> I mean I do the best I can but I, I can really feel a difference not being there in the room with the kids you know and then I perform. You probably saw I, I do. A, I've had a one-man show for quite a long time now, called the the live jukebox, Mike Weaver's live jukebox, and it's kind of fun. It's uh, I, years ago when I started to get out of the the rock band scene along the Jersey Shore, I wanted to put together sort of a you know, computer MIDI technology had just started taking off around that time, and it became possible to sequence all these background tracks: drums, bass, keyboard, strings, whatever. Uh, not record them, but actually sequence them, which didn't take a lot of memory because back in those days, digital audio was really steep and really thick and cumbersome. But with sequencing, I could get my the computer to play all my keyboard parts for me. And I would play the guitar and sing. So I started programming songs like 30 years ago for this. And little by little, I built up this big library of songs. So now I do a show where I hand out a song list of say 60 songs to people. And they actually uh, request what they want to hear for the night. So the audience makes the set list. And it's just you. It's yeah, everything. Just me. Yep. One man band. And so what do you play live? Do you play the guitar live? I play the guitar live, actually. Yeah. I've been playing a lot more guitar lately, probably again, starting around 1990 or so. It's just a better instrument to front with. You know, it's, it's better, a better audience, eye contact, you know, and the keyboards kind of stay off to the side, but I can, you know, and I think we all want to be a, a lead guitar player at heart somewhere. So... And so how'd you end up in Albuquerque? Why'd you pick there when you headed west? Or why'd you head west even? <laughs> really just quality of life. Um, my wife and I have been together. We started dating in 1990. So it's been, you know, 30 years we've been together. We, we got married in uh, 2003. And, you know, as we, we used to travel a lot. She, she was, she's in education. She was a school teacher. Uh, now she actually has co-founded a charter school out here for dropout recovery. And then I had summers off a lot of times. I started playing, um, doing this computerized one-man thing for uh, school kids. I was doing assembly programs. So we would have like three months off in the summer. So we would travel a lot. And every time we traveled, we would drive through New Mexico and go out the other side and say, that place is cool. You know, and uh, I think eventually there was one night we were back home. We were living down at the shore at the time. And something had gone wrong that day. And we were trying to get in a happy place. And we're like, just let's lie here and pretend we're in New Mexico. They were like, what are we doing? Why don't we just go to New Mexico? So (laughs) that's kind of what happened. You know, we cashed in a large ships, got married. And uh, a couple months later, headed out here. Yeah. Where are you? Montpelier. Montpelier. Okay. Yeah. When I first. That's pretty far off, right? It's well, no, not really. When we first came here, we'd always go to the Mad River Valley, Sugarbush. And and we didn't go to Mad River Glen at the time. But um, so I kind of always knew that that area. So Montpelier is um, about halfway up the state. It's the capital. Okay. But there's only 9,000 residents or so, less than 9,000 people. That's small, wow. Tiny little place, cool. but it's sweet. It's nice, good size, you know, and it's five or six hours down to New York again and Boston, so it's... Cool. Um, so before we go back, before we stroll back down uh, with the pandemic, so we got wow. a little, a small little taste of your life out there in Albuquerque. How has it changed? What's happening out there right now? New Mexico has been really progressive in terms of its... Uh, shutdown and uh, social distancing. So we were very early on. I mean, schools closed down, I think, as of March 13th, somewhere around there. Um, you know, so they've been ahead of the curve. Uh, so just like I think everybody else, we're spending a lot more time at home. Uh, it's kind of weird. There's no, you can't go out to the, the bars and hear our bands anymore. Can't play for people. You know, I'm definitely getting a Jones to play and I, I can't, you know, put on the guitar, maybe do like a, a Facebook live thing or something. But just like you said, you have all the time in the world, but you don't have any because nothing, nothing's normal anymore. All of the things that used to be routine, that you used to be able to just kind of check off your list and get on with the more creative artistic part of your life. All of a sudden now they take a lot more work and focus because they don't just happen like they used to. Right. 
you know so and i think other people i've talked to that are artists are running into the same problem it's like you know if, if you are especially if you're a working artist like if you're making your living at it you kind of have to carve out time for the creative aspect of it you know not just the the workaday part and so you, you try to organize things like in a way where things run really efficiently and then you know you, you free up this this time energetically and actually physical time to you know sit down and write for three or four hours yeah you know and that stuff's actually been really hard because all the normal stuff suddenly isn't normal anymore and it takes up a lot more mental capital to try to you know figure out what's going on you know so yeah, totally that's probably the biggest change i've seen and what's your thoughts i know it's it's like i think for me that's part of the solution's just been like just keep it in the day right we don't know where we're going and just be in the moment which is an upside but um where are you how are you thinking about how we pull out of this what are your thoughts what are your concerns well i mean well i'll tell you it's it's tough cuz it, i'm 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 historically an optimist you know and i've always tried to maintain that i think for me i I've never been one of those brooding musician types that just kind of picks out all the flaws in the world. Like I've always been more of the, yay, you know, underneath it all stuff's good. Yeah. Um, I think that people are starting to maybe realize that we do a lot of things out of habit and a lot of things without much thought. And now it's like all of a sudden you're having to take stock of an awful lot of things. You know, you're home a lot more, you're spending a lot more time with the people you love. You know, one of the things in terms of coming out of it that I think is going to be interesting is I'm, I'm kind of hoping you know, you get a sense as we become more technologically um, dependent, you know, and everybody, I just think about the number of phone calls I used to have with people versus now texting, you know, which has advantages and disadvantages, you know, and that you can carry on the conversation, but it doesn't have to be all, all absorbing. You can do other things and kind of go along, you know. Um, but I, I think that uh, I always felt like a little bit of the, the personal connection has been lost through that. You know, hearing people's voices, being able to hear the tones of their voices. In fact, you know, you, you, sometimes I, I feel like there's there's a lot of misunderstandings I've run into because I've maybe texted something to somebody that if they had heard the tone of my voice, they would have taken one way, but completely took it out of context. You know, it's like, oh, dude, that was a joke. You know, so there's a lot of things I feel like have been kind of stretching too far that way. And I'm hoping that people maybe because everything's been sort of taken away from us all at once, you know, we can't interact directly anymore. That maybe people will realize how much they miss that. You know, maybe hopefully people will start to maybe go out to concerts more again and see live music rather than, you know, just like, you know, streaming on their phone. Or maybe when they're at the concert, they'll actually watch the show rather than filming the show in its entirety on their phones. There's a lot of reason that a lot of us musicians I mean, we could sit in a studio all day and record and make everything perfect and flawless and, and get all the kinks out. And, you know, sometimes it calls for that. But part of the reason I think we love to play live is that real interaction you get, that situation where stuff can go wrong and people know it. It's like a, it's like a high wire act sometimes. And I think that there's an urgency and the audience brings you the energy and you bring it to them. And I'm just hoping that maybe that with all the stuff being ripped away and you could apply this to anything outside of music too, but just maybe more of an appreciation of, of personal interaction and personal contact, maybe people you know, get out a little bit more and, and get out of their boxes a little bit more and get into um, you know, just seeing people and going to people's houses and hanging out. Yeah. That's, that's my optimist side. I love it, man. I mean, the more this stretches on, you realize, wow, just like that, all that stuff was removed that we just take for granted. No warning. It wasn't like you could prepare for it. It was like, boom, what would your life be like if this happened? And then it happened. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. Cool, man. Well, let's go for the stroll down memory lane. I'm, um, why don't we go all the way back? You know, tell me about your time. Were you born in Sparta and uh, born and raised in Sparta? And, you know, I, I think back, you know, looking at, at my path to becoming a musician and I almost feel like at least playing an instrument was predestined in my family. You know, my mom played piano. Uh, my dad sang. And when I was a little kid at the dinner table, you know, I'd be finishing my dinner and they would sit at the piano and sing show tunes. You know, so my mom would be playing stuff from West Side Story. My dad would sing and they'd be saying, and I just eat real slow because I got a show with it. You know, and, and my brother was 10 years older than me. Uh, also, uh, he wasn't born and raised in Sparta, but he came to Sparta probably in elementary school. Um, and my sister was nine years older than me. So I had, you know, way older siblings. They both played instruments. My brother had a rock band when he was in high school. So it was kind of just like in our family, you played an instrument and that was what was expected. There were two things. Uh, sports was expected and music was expected. And, you know, when you're the youngest that far behind, you just sort of buy into whatever the family ethos is. And that's what it was. So 
you know, uh, started playing the clarinet in fourth grade in school band and then um, took some piano lessons. And then in seventh grade, uh, our, the middle school band teacher, Mr. Urbanski, what was his name, put together this little band where he wrote these arrangements and uh, I played piano in it. And we had a piano player, bass player, uh, drummer, and then like four horn players. And he wrote everything out. And I remember we did the, the Teen Arts Festival down in Trenton. It was a, like a pretty big deal and stuff. And that just got me lit up for it. You know, and then uh, starting in eighth grade, Fitzy, Patrick Fitzsimmons, and I started a band we called Requiem. Me and Patrick and uh, this guy named Dallas Stevens, who played guitar. And then uh, this kid named Bob Stoltz. Bob was our singer. He couldn't really sing very much, but he had uh, no fear. He would just sing really loud and proud and pretty off key. And, and our four song set list. Four song set list. We're an American band, which was, you know, like our go to. I still remember every word of that to this day. Um, Taking Care of Business by Bachman Turner Overdrive. Smoke on the Water, of course, because every rock band had to play that. Yep. And then when I think back on this, I have no idea how we pulled this off. But Stairway to Heaven. Oh. Yeah, the epic. That was our big set list. <laughs> you mentioned that you, you were, you're psyched now because you were able to be a musician. Do you remember back early on, like liking music that much? Like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Or was it always just kind of on the side? I think there was always a hope, you know, I mean, it's one of the things, you know, Sparta, as you know, having grown up there, it was a pretty upper middle class, almost upper class town at the time, a lot of ways. And there was definitely, you know, a, a love for the arts. And I think a lot of people got involved. But there was also, I think, an expectation that everybody was going to grow up and be kind of career oriented, you know, and I was always told, you know, music could be a thing. Yeah, do it on the side. You know, you always have it for your life. And um and I actually did that. I mean, when I first started college, I was an electrical engineering major. I didn't start off with music. I, I went to University of Delaware, uh, figured I could get under the DuPont uh, family umbrella down there and get myself a good gig. And I just remember the first semester sitting down there in calculus class and thinking to myself, I really don't want to do this the rest of my life. I just really don't want to do this. So I went home pleading my case to my mother. My father passed away the early in my senior year. You know, and he might've given me a little bit of a harder time about it, but she was a little more of a soft touch. And so I said, Hey, look at it this way. I can either do engineering, not really enjoy it, and then do music for fun on the rest of my life, or I could become a really good musician. And I had to convince her that, you know, music isn't just about like being a rock star and that's the only way to make a living. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Somebody's making money. And so it's really just a matter of making sure that you're flexible, that you have a few different skill sets that you can kind of find waves and ride them that you get along with people. Like there's a lot of ways to make money in, in the music industry. I mean, engineering, producing, even just running production for them. There's a million ways to do it. So once I sold her on that, I switched over to being a music major and never went back. After. Nice. So you made a conscious decision back then. Like, that's it. I'm doing it. I did. I, fig I figured if worst came to worst, I could go back to school and then study engineering later. So um, back to the back to the early days. Think about transitioning. So you and you and Fitz and uh, Dallas Stevens and Stoltz. That's great. So when did you guys then? When did you start? Uh, I guess the other band, right? What was what was the next band that you got in with, which kind of evolved into the From Good Homes band? Oh, uh, that was Old Crow. Old Crow. Um, yeah, Old Crow was the one that was, that was the, the mothership. And how did that work out? When what were the early days of that? Dallas moved on to something else. I don't know what happened with Dallas. Fitz and I said, well, let's. Let's kind of start our own band. And so we found this guy who was a year older than me, I think. His name is Todd Brown. And Todd Brown played bass. And so I remember over the summer between eighth grade and freshman year, it was me, Fitzy, and Todd Brown in Fitzy's basement up in Alpine. And we were trying to, uh, you know, we were starting to play some songs. And I was actually at that point, I started playing some guitar too. And I was trying to do double duty. I was trying to be a guitar player and keyboard player and sing with Fitz on drums and then Todd on bass. And that lasted for about two rehearsals. And we were like, we need more people. <laughs> this isn't going to work it out. Like I was pretty confident as a keyboard player. I was still new as a guitar player. And, you know, unless we're going to be a power trio or Emerson, Lake and Palmer, there was just no way, you know, that was going to fly. So we thought we'd run an ad in the newspaper. And so we ran an ad in the New Jersey Herald, the classifieds saying we were looking for a guitar player. Um, at the time, uh, Todd Schaefer, who was a year behind me, he was just going into eighth grade. He was in a band called Rare Breed. And that was him and I think the Rhymers 
and Bert Regstad, if I recall, were in that band. And I remember seeing them one time at the, I think the Presbyterian Church or something. I don't know. It was back in the days, like the church, you could do a rock concert on a Friday night at a church. That's pretty fun. And I remember seeing them and just being like, wow, those kids are good. Like they're younger than me. I remember they were playing Aerosmith and things and they were talented. It was just like, whoa, these are kids. You know, so uh, we put the ad in the paper and uh, Todd Schaefer answered the ad. And it was Todd and you could hear another voice in the background. And it was funny because Todd didn't want to say who he was. He was asking who Fitzy was. And Fitzy didn't want to say who he was. He was like, well, who's this? And they were kind of like, who's this first? Who's this? And we all kind of knew of each other. And uh, finally, Fitzy's like, ah, it's, it's Fitzy. And Todd's like, Fitzy, it's Todd Schaefer. And next thing you know, we're like, oh, why don't you come on up? And he's like, well, you know, Brady wants to come and, and play too. And we're like, but you guys are in a band. And we're like, that's okay. So uh, what wound up happening was uh, <laughs> they came up and uh, we started jamming, the five of us started playing and uh, did that for a while. And then there was a big battle of the bands coming up. And I remember it was the Sparta High School Gymnasium. And what we decided to do, and I don't even know how it came to be, but we just decided to merge the two bands. And that was the beginning of the two drummers. We had Fitzy on drums and Bert on drums. I think Scott Reimer learned some guitar. I think we still had our bass player. I think Scott, I think we had three guitars at the time. I think Scott and Brady and Todd were all playing guitar and I played keyboards. And so it was this kind of like amalgam and uh, which was great because we were playing a lot of Grateful Dead and Alma Brothers, which are two drummer bands. So here we are, these like young kids, like freshman year, maybe sophomore, maybe, I don't know, in high school. And um, we've got this two drummer set up and everything. And the bands we played against were way better than us. They were pros. But it was like an audience participation kind of, you know, loudest cheers wins. And so, you know, we ended up winning the Battle of the Bands and, and it went on from there. You know? A lot of people have brought up that Battle of the Bands. And I kind of yeah. remember it, but... Um, yeah, you were probably, you were, were you there? I must have been there, sure. And, uh, I, you know, I think Fitz told me that story too. And he mentioned the other band was Blue Emerald. Blue Emerald, yeah. They were one of the really great bands from Sussex County at Right, the time. so it must have been a lot they of tension because home, the home field advantage kind of won the day. Oh, totally. We everybody knew what happened. We all knew they were better than us. Describe that scene a bit, like going from there. I remember some parties and stuff. Like, it's funny to think about a band playing around a town like that. But what was that like, you know, for people that may not have no clue of where they emerged out of? You know, I think that might have been a product of where we were and the time that it was. Because, you know, in the 70s, um, you know, for better or worse, it's just the way it was. The drinking and drinking laws were way, way more lax. You know, I mean, you could pretty much show a library card and get into most bars if, you know, people look the other way, like they just didn't really care. And so it was possible, strange as it seemed, to be a, a working band in high school. We play up at uh, the Speakeasy, uh, Tom Tierney's old place. You know, I could probably say that's Sidley now because he's probably long gone, but I don't know. <laughs> you know, and yeah, but they just do these crazy things there where he charged five bucks a head at the door and it'd be all the beer you could drink. And so there'd be like a, a, a bar full of like high school kids. So we would pack the place. I mean, it would just be like wall to wall people. And so we're, we kind of start to get around. We did a couple adult parties. I think the Rhymer's parents had like a, some sort of an industry party that we played at one time. We started you know, playing around some bars, high school dances, which of course didn't end up being dances. Everybody just stood and watched because it was really a concert. Yeah. And so we played, I remember we played over in Franklin a couple times. I think we maybe played like Newton. I don't know. Just like different, like, you know, high schools, middle schools. Sparta Middle School dance. I remember my senior year playing there. I remember the uh, notoriously the Friedolf Freak Festivals. Do you remember them? No. There was uh, it was up off of past the high school, whatever that road was, way up there. Oh yeah, I do remember up on the hill. Yeah, West Mountain Road. Yeah, big open field in the back, and yep. you know just a big kegger. But there was a few parties that you guys played that were. There were, although now there was a period. You know, I graduated before the rest of those. Uh, Fitz did too, but I think Fitz was still in town. I uh, graduated and went away to college. So there was a period there where I would like come back on weekends for gigs from Delaware. Mm. And uh, I remember that year, actually that fall, I know we played the Marsha Dimes Telethon uh, down in Atlantic City. I remember we did a, like a live set there and it was like three or four in the morning that they had a song because everything was live Yeah. at that point. And I remember I had to drive up from Delaware to Jersey, to like New York, I think, or like Newark or something to pick up Todd. And then Todd and I drove all the way down to Atlantic City from there with like all my gear in the back of the car, my old Pinto hatchback. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was weird rolling into Atlantic City, like at, like I don't know, maybe midnight or one in the morning and setting up for that. So yeah, yeah that, that was a specific show I really remember. I don't know if anybody talked about that one. Todd mentioned the telethon. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah that was fun. That yeah. was a wild, wild thing. Yeah. Um, 
So do you remember like rehearsals and did you guys start to write original stuff or what was going on? It was what was happening musically and what were you playing? You mentioned Almonds and the Dead. I kind of remember that. But what what was rehearsing like and how did that how were you feeling like coming together as kind of young people playing in this rock band? And what was that like? It was interesting because you know, nobody nobody was really in charge, which was kind of neat. A lot of the early rehearsals were at Fitzy's because he had a, a rec room downstairs. In fact, that's where the name Old Crow came from. His downstairs was set up like a bar and they had all these uh, bar placards on the wall. And one of them was like an Old Crow placard. We're like, Old Crow, that's pretty cool. Like, So that was the origin of that name came off of uh, Fitzy's wall. So we did that for a while. It was fun. Sometimes we pulled the equipment outside because he was up on that ledge looking over like Mohawk. And we would play like across the lake in the summertime and rehearse that way. And people would like kind of come over and up. And of course, we get some calls from the cops, you know, because, you know, East Shore didn't really want to hear it. Um, so those were the early rehearsals. And then eventually we went into Todd's um, kind of garage basement area and started rehearsing there a lot. Sometimes we'd be up at birds, sometimes it with the Rhymers, especially I think when the Rhymers lived, uh, they used to live on the other side of the lake off of like Pinecone Lane or one of those roads. So it comes to different people's uh, rec rooms, basements, houses. But as far as the musical stuff went, I think there was like sort of a core still, I think, of Todd and Brady and probably Bert that were really into the dead. And they had pretty similar musical tastes, I think. And early on, it was a lot of Southern rock. Brady really liked the Outlaws, I remember, and Charlie Daniels. That was kind of his thing, right? Uh, Scott was really into the Doors. And I think, you know, he really, and he used to do front as Jim Morrison on a few of the songs, you know. And he, I mean, he really pulled it off. Again, not, his, his pitch wasn't really great, but he definitely had the mood and the tone of the voice. And I think he went on to be an actor, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's like, right. he definitely had, like, a, a stage presence to him. You know, Fitz, I, you know, Fitz, Fitz was so cool. Like, he was mellow. He, I remember he was, he was just the most affable, like, nicest guy. Even when he'd, like, bust your, bust your balls or whatever afterwards, he'd always kind of grin and tell you he was kidding. Like, he just, he's, I'm sure he still is. Like, he just was, like, so, so nice and accommodating. And then I really like prog rock. Like I was a keyboard player. So my taste, I always was trying to push to do like things like Emerson, Lake and Palmer or yes, or Genesis, you know, cause I like the stuff that really featured the keys, you know? So they, they would throw a few of those in every now and then they were really tough to pull off. And in retrospect, I didn't really have the gear. What were some of the songs that you got? What was the closest you got to some of the songs you wanted to play in that? Oh, I remember actually we did an assembly at the high school, probably my senior year. And we did a uh, fanfare for the common man. I didn't even have a keyboard that sounded like a trumpet though. So it probably was pretty lame, but you know, we did it and it was fun and they they were game, you know, but I remember our core was this and it was a great core to grow up with. It was doors, dead, almond brothers, stones. And we would play those bar gigs and those dances. I would say probably 75% of our show would be those four bands. And I can't think of a better platform to go out into the world as a working musician knowing that canon of music you know and the way they went about their canon of music because all those bands did the songs differently live than they did when they recorded them so the idea of jamming was really like obvious and and necessary to me at a really early age that it's like yeah and keep your eyes open and watch for cues and listen to each other and you know and, and i think when a lot of kids start bands it's like let's learn a song we'll do it just like the album which is a great place to start but we would sometimes, I remember, get on stage without a set list mm. in high school yeah. and just like flow from song to song. And at the time, it was no big deal. But I look back on the now and I'm thinking, wow, that was pretty heady stuff. Yeah. You know, and what do you think was good. what allowed you to do that? Certainly the dead influence and just, a, yeah, I guess you found a, a commonality among the five people. Yeah, I think there was. I think I think the dead influence, especially for those three guys, like I, I was I didn't have any problem with the dead, but I was in no way a, a, a dead head or a, a really dead fan. I mean, I knew the songs everybody else knew, like Trucking at the time was really big and stuff. But when they started playing them, it was music that lent itself really well to that. Because what could happen is we could break down, and you know, we would listen to some old bootleg tapes. I think everybody kind of had older brothers and sisters. I recall, I know Todd had uh, older siblings. Uh, Fitz, I know, did. And there were some old like tapes and stuff around. And so we would listen to how they would like go off into a space jam in the middle of something, and Jerry would say, start playing a lick from another song, and somebody would pick it up. And so we started experimenting with that a little bit in rehearsals. And then just decided, you know, to try it out live, yeah. you know, it's really nice. You, you get a, a certain uh, freedom to try that stuff when all the kids in your school are showing up to all your gigs anyway. And they're just as excited that you're doing what you're doing as you are. 
Yeah. So it's a safe place. It's a really safe place to try stuff. If you screw up, nobody's going to make fun of you. Like they're all sharing it with you and they're watching you grow. And I always felt that. All right. here we go it's you know it was amazing to have like a town band that you'd be looking like almost going on tour right around town the parties and clubs whatever yeah it was kind of fun and i remember there were a few other people that had bands i think um uh there was another band mike jambra i think i don't know if you remember him he had a band with some guys um i you know there was another great guitar player in town that we used to jam with every once in a while bill nunziata boy he was good i remember he would he knew all those like Leonard Skinner, like note for note, and he was really smooth and really clean. But sometimes he would sit in, and that would be an interesting mix too. And then uh, who's it? Uh, Dave Grimsland, who I think was a classmate of yours. I don't remember him having a band in high school, but I know he is. He's out in Denver. I'm sure you probably ran into him when you're out there. I was in his band in high school. We were the Paladin Steed man. We had a band. Come on now. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> we played with uh, Wayne and Chuck Russell. And okay. Rich Patrowitz was on the drums and Reaper was on the keys. So yeah, we, we were okay. Cool. A little nice. might've been a little after your time. Cause I stay in touch with Dave. Good. Yeah. I lived in Boulder for many years and I talked to him recently and I told him I was going to be talking to you. And he, he said that when you were leaving town there, he was hoping that he would step in play piano. Oh. And so right. he wanted to take lessons from you. Do you remember ever giving him lessons? I don't, but it sounds like I, I, I would. I mean, was I cool about it, I hope? Well, he that was the problem. You said, no, man, we're learning. You wanted to teach him fundamentals and classical, and he wanted to learn like from like all the all the songs that he would play. Oh, so you were just, you were probably giving tribute to how he should start as a piano player. Right, yeah. right. Maybe. I don't, but he ended up, he's, he's killing it. He's got a, a, a dueling pianos thing going up there. And yeah. Been in touch with him, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So. That's funny. Yeah. Well, you know, also, I think that when I was leaving, I mean, I, I had intended to stay in the band, you know, oh, like okay, when I went yeah. to Delaware, that was another thing, maybe. So, I mean, I may, I don't know if he told me he wanted to take my place. <laughs> oh, he probably didn't. Oh, maybe that, maybe he was going undercover and you said, no, I'm not going to teach you these songs. Cause then, yeah. yeah, that's funny. So then you went down to, um, anything else before? Cause I'm really curious to hear about the time you and Todd played as a duo. Well, there, was, there was a step in between. Yeah, it was yeah. really significant, at least for me. All right. So uh, when I came back from um, from Delaware, I went to kind of college of Morris for a semester. And around that time, I met some people from um, Newton and Newton had a really good music scene, too. In fact, Blue Emerald was out of Newton. And there was another subset of musicians. They weren't Sparta High School because there was a kid who went to Pope John who played bass named Chris Fairley. Yeah, yeah. Chris Fairley. I do remember him. 
played bass. Yeah, and he ended up playing with a lot of a lot of bands around Sparta. And then some guys from Newton, this guy Paul Wegman, who was this crazy killer guitar player. And we had similar taste. I mean, he was into King Crimson and Yes and all that stuff. And uh, the keyboard player from Blue Emerald, his younger brother was a drummer from Newton. So we teamed up with him. And then uh, the four of us kind of were the core of this other band. Uh, Stephanie Sapio sang for us. She was a uh, our female vocalist. So we did like some Jefferson Airplane and we did some Carly Simon and stuff that she could uh, wail on. She sounded great. And then we had a couple other guys. We had a trumpet player who uh, played every once in a while. I played some sax, some saxophone. Yeah, I'm not a good sax player, but I can play like, you know, 80s sax lines, like the NXS stuff and the you know, Men at Work stuff, like the simple parts and stuff. So, so we started a band, that band was called Free Will. And our goal, we really wanted to become one of the big cover bands. Like if you remember at that time, the cover bands were a big, big racket, big, big money. Sussex County didn't have a lot of places. I mean, the closest things I can think of that were like that were the Nook down in Hackettstown. The Hayloft came along a little bit later. And these bands, I mean, they had their own giant three-way PA systems. They had their own light shows. They had a follow spot operator. And this was all required for you to get gigs in these places. You had to own that stuff. And they all had roadies. And... The, this is before uh, DJs were a really big deal, before you could uh, go out and necessarily dance to DJs unless you lived in New York or one of the cities. So cover bands were huge. Like if you wanted to dance to top 40 music, you went out to see a band. And some of the clubs down the line, like down at the shore, they would hold 2,000 people. They're big clubs. And these bands would play five bucks ahead at the door, and they played for the door. So these bands were bringing home $10,000 on a Saturday night. And we're thinking, yeah, I want some of that. So we were trying to, to groom ourselves to become that kind of band. The problem was we weren't really playing commercially popular stuff. We were trying to play edgier stuff like, like Alan Parsons Project, uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer, you know, really difficult, intricate songs, along with some Almond Brothers. But like when we did Almond Brothers, we were doing Memory of Elizabeth Reed, things like that, like the really extended uh, edgy stuff. Um, and so, yeah, then we go out and see these other bands. But the problem was we weren't, we didn't play those well enough to compete with the bands that did that kind of stuff. Like there was a band called Prophet that was just amazing. And I mean, they just had, those guys were just, you know, pros. And so I think if we had gone maybe for a little easier stuff and for more of a party band thing, we could have done it. But so that eventually kind of broke up. And I auditioned for a few of those types of bands. When you talk Shore. about your time playing down at the Jersey Shore, is that what you're talking about? That's that's what came after this. That came right after Todd and I played. Okay, so, so this is in between. Yeah. This is not that yet. Yeah, this is kind of in between. I remember one time I, I might have some tapes of it around. Uh, Todd came and sat in with Free Will in a in a basement rehearsal, and it was just so cool. And and Bill Nunziata was there too. So it was Todd who has his beautiful long jams when he used to play more electric. He had this really nice style on the Les Paul that just was really, you know, like almost conversational. Then you had Bill would come in with his solo and he would do these beautiful, like precision Southern rock kind of lines, just really smooth and buttery. And then Paul Wegman would come in with these weird angular, like Steve Howe kind of lines, you know, and it was beautiful. And I can remember vividly jamming Elizabeth Reed and everybody taking like an extended solo in it and just thinking like, this is just so cool. Like these guys are all good and they're all so different, you know? So, so there was this kind of brief intermingling of all the streams at one point, you know? So, um, so that band kind of broke up and then Todd and I, you know, at that point I had developed this really big keyboard rig. It was like four high. Actually, I had a kind of electric piano on the bottom a like imitation Hammond organ after that. Then I got in this chord poly six synthesizer, which could do strings and trumpets and that. And then I had this little mono keyboard that was really great for either like woo, woo, synth lines or I could play bass on it. And then I had this little mixing board that, you know, I could run them all through. And so Todd and I started going out and I would kind of cover like all the keyboard and bass parts and Todd would play guitar. We would both sing and we started playing as a duo. And that started going really well because I think from all the jamming that we've done for, for all those years, like we really could listen to each other and pick up like what parts were missing and who could pick up what spots and everything. And it, it really, we barely, it didn't take a lot of time for us to put together a, a show that sounded pretty good. You know, we drew on the stuff that we played with the band and then some stuff that stuff that we each wanted to do maybe separately that wouldn't work for the band. Yeah. And so that went on for a little while. Where did you play? What kind of venues? Oh, we were playing little bars up all around uh, Sussex County. I remember playing over in uh, Newton. We played at a place that was, I think it was called Pebbles for a while. 
we played it at a, a Pappy's Roadhouse up in Lake Pacong. We played at uh, Sparta Inn. Oh, Sparta yeah. Inn ended up becoming one of our biggest gigs. Oh yeah, yeah. We played there, and we, it was weird. We played there on a Monday night in the summer, huh. and the place would be like packed, like like wall to wall with people on a Monday night. That was the heyday of the Sparta Inn, though. That was the time people mourned when that place finally closed. Yeah, that was the. But I think so. So that's just kind of. We, I think there were points we were playing four or five nights a week. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But I think I still have my eye on the other uh, the other deal, you know. And then Todd went to school. I guess he was to, went to Columbia. Yep. So yeah, so it was a little bit harder for us to get together once school started, you know. Um, I would sometimes have to pick him up at the Newark train station, and we'd go you know do our thing. Or sometimes he could get home because there wasn't really train service at the Sparta. Yeah. Yeah. You talked a little bit about Todd's guitar playing. How would you, um, I mean, I, you've seen Railroad Earth, I think. You've seen Railroad Earth late, or since then. How would you describe Todd back then and was um, as a musician, and especially as a duo, right? Because you guys had to know each other pretty well. Did you see his mm-hmm. song? Was there song, original songs coming out at that point? And did you see that as part of his future? He was working on the writing. In fact, um, the uh, Warhead Boogie came out around that time. I think he had written that with... Um, Somebody, which by the way, I just, I want to put this on the record. Uh, somebody I met here in Albuquerque said, oh yeah, you, you wrote, you, you and Todd wrote that song, Warhead Boogie. wasn't me. Uh-huh. I had nothing to do with it, yeah. but wish I did, but I didn't. Yeah. So okay. that was Todd. I mean, it might've been some of the other guys in Old Crow. I don't know if Brady might've been on it, but yeah. it wasn't me. So okay. just you know, always want to, don't want to take credit for that. But um, yeah, so he did that. And I think we tried to write a few things, but you know, that was when it started to become, I don't know if it was clear, but we had different visions for how we wanted things to go. You know, Todd was really into jams and, and liked jamming and uh, was kind of more, and he was really into Bob Dylan. He was like really into lyrics a lot. And, you know, so, songs with maybe simpler musical themes, but maybe more poignant lyrics. And I was really into the idea of like studio perfection. I loved like Steely Dan and that kind of thing. So I was more into the minutia and the sound and like the audio vibe of things, like the real, like, full, nice, uh, polished stuff. And that wasn't really Todd's bag. I think he wanted to go to, I don't think he minded stuff sounding good, but I don't think he was really into worrying about that as much as he just wanted to, you know? And so, you know, I remember he came down, I had a, a house down in, um, Bloomfield that I was renting when I was going to school down there. And, uh, he came down and we got together to write a couple of times, I think, and work on some stuff. And I think at that time he had gotten some sort of a connection to New York where he started recording with some guys, there, which may have been the beginning of From Good Homes, I'm not sure. But, uh, and right around that time, I got a big break to get into the circuit that I was trying to get into. Um, what happened was there was this woman, her name was Carol Williams. She was a, a, a singer, like she was actually a really big disco singer in the 70s. She was the vocalist on the South Soul Orchestra's stuff when they were like, you know, it was like sort of a, a disco big band. And so she was trying to make a comeback. And I auditioned to be the keyboard player in the comeback band there and uh, got that gig. And so that was kind of the end, I think, for me and Todd, because uh, that was that ended up being a five, six night a week gig. One of the weirdest gigs I ever did. We would spend, we would play like really big clubs. We played Studio 54 one time. Nice. We, nice. I know, and back in the day, that was actually something, you know, like in the early 80s, yeah. wasn't super, but yeah, uh, we played the Golden Dove in Brooklyn, which I think was where a lot of um, the John Travolta uh, movies were you know, centered around that place. But then we'd spend six nights in the, um, like Woodbridge Hilton, you know? So (laughs) it's like, you know, just real hit or miss. So what years are we talking? That was, uh, 85. Yeah. uh, Fall of 85 is when I stopped. So Todd and I played together up through like the beginning of 85. It's interesting for me to, to kind of think about that time frame. you know, mid eighties, both musically and then also culturally. You know, like that's Wall Street's going off the hook and it's the beginning of or like this consumption was it was just it was on. Right. So if you economics, if you could talk about both of those, like the music scene too, you mentioned it was big covers around that time, but also hip hop's coming out of the Bronx. Right. The end of disco and punks happening. So just that scene and, and what what you were doing and just describe that scene. Right. How you remember it now, I guess, with some hindsight. Yeah. Yeah, the Jersey Shore club circuit at that time, like I was talking about. And that was really from like my life from 85 till probably 1990. Five years, I didn't touch a piece of equipment. The excess was so in abundance at that point. I told you what those bands were making. There was so much money available. People would come backstage. They'd show their drugs to the bouncer and be able to walk right back in and say hi. Like, I mean, it was it was like a mini 
rock star scene. The style of music at that time, every band kind of had their own shtick a little bit. Like uh, the new wave stuff was pretty popular then. You know, punk had kind of evolved into more Depeche Mode, um, that kind of stuff, uh, The Smiths, The Cure. And those bands, there was a band I remember called The Nines that kind of specialized in that. And they were kind of dark and electronic and brooding. Yasker's Farm was really popular. They did all Woodstock stuff. Mm. Prophet did all the prog stuff. There was a band called The Watch. They did all like the kind of dancey stuff. And uh, they were all, but all kind of under the same, in fact, they all had the same booking agents. Yeah. And these booking agents would just rotate them around these giant clubs all throughout the state, like all year long. Yeah, We'd have a full schedule 50 weeks out of the year and we'd get two weeks off. Yeah. So I guess depending on the style you were into, but I do remember when the DJs started playing more house music and stuff. And it was during the band's breaks. We go backstage, like from our like rock show and they would be playing, um, you know, like uh, get higher, baby. It was that free bass, you know, oh, yeah. white lines yeah that kind of stuff and uh the d and so people got to the dance floor and danced to that during, not even realizing that someday that stuff would probably pretty much totally replaced us uh-huh. you know all those clubs became dance clubs after a while because yeah. you didn't have to pay a band anymore you yeah. pay one dj and they, they got rid of us all yeah. <laughs> you know? and then but, how, um, how about just like the culture at the time you know like thinking about the 80s into the 90s you know thinking about a band like from good homes as they came out in the early 90s right Right. Like culturally, what was happening? And I, I always thought that their music was a little bit of a commentary on that, on that mm-hmm. kind of excess. So. Yeah, it would have been. I know Todd was always pretty politically astute. You know, that would make sense that their stuff would be sort of an anti-Reaganomics sort of, and that the culture that came with that. But also, you know, it was the lifestyle too. You know, there were really two, if you wanted to keep going to music at that point, there were the two forks. You know, you could go out and make the money now and do what I was doing with the covers, right? And what Todd did was, you know, they started a band and they did what a lot of bands did that really worked out well for a lot of them. They they got themselves a van. They started playing small places. They went up and down the East Coast. They built a following like organically, naturally, which was a really, really great thing. Um, I didn't have any interest in doing that. I had to fly. I had to I had to get out and, and not be the big fish in the small pond anymore yeah. and play with some different people. And my situation was such I mean, I was finishing up college. I told you my dad had passed at the end of high school. Um, I had to make some money. Yeah. I think you either kind of went for the glitz or maybe you went more for the substance. Yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, not that either one didn't have the other. And of course they ended up with plenty of glitz because they became really popular. And I mean, I ended up getting to play with and know some just outstanding musicians that I still love to this day, like from the Jersey shore. I mean, that spending time in that stone pony circuit down there and getting to know a lot of those guys. I mean, we, we played shows where the entire Bon Jovi band would show up and play with us. You got up on stage like we'd be like us and Bon Jovi on the stage all playing different instruments together like it was fun and Springsteen you know showed up a couple times so what years were that again and what was yeah describe that that shore scene with a uh, Springsteen popping in now I guess the fall of of 85 that fall got into my first real cover band uh down at the shore the band was called Candy they played like a lot of South Jersey like Long Beach Island and South Jersey gigs and my mother actually moved to uh, Newtown Pennsylvania so I'd moved down there and lived with her for a while. And that commute started sucking too. So eventually, I guess a couple of years later, 87, maybe, I, I got an apartment down along the shore down in Neptune, you know, and then everything got closer. And then I started, I joined a band that worked basically out of freehold. So, and I was bystander. That was my big, my big band for about three years, you know, did an album with them like 1987. They did an original album. Uh, they were pretty big locally. I mean, we won the, uh, I guess the Aquarian used to be called the East Coast Rocker at the time. And we won their uh, best band search contest for uh, 1987. The other three guys in the band were the writers. Uh, they had had that band for a long time and I was definitely a hired gun. Um, so they weren't, they were also older than me and they weren't real uh, open to uh, giving me a lot of creative input. Although ironically, when it came time to go in the studio, um, because I was so interested and kind of had like a, history of, of this fascination with the studio when they would get stuck with stuff they'd always send me to go talk to the producer about like what they were looking for so irony of ironies you know like you can't write any songs but you can help us make it sound good so when when did you meet your wife down around that time uh 1990 uh she was a college student at rutgers yep when i met her um and she actually used to be a piano student of mine once upon a time after she was done she went to college and then later we uh got together one time and it's like hey you're pretty cool let's let's hang out and 30 years later we're still hanging out yeah 
So when you guys just decided to head west to move west, um, what what year was that? That was two thousand three. So then, what was happening between ninety and two thousand three? Were you still playing with? What were you doing musically? Well, very uh, a lot of things. Uh, the quick evolution was in the process of making that album with that band Bystander. I had learned an awful lot about that computer keyboard sequencing stuff. That's when I actually started. I uh, put the idea together to be a one man band. I'd have some more control. I could pick the nights I wanted to work, and I already played guitar. So I put together this really sweet rig with an Atari 1040 ST computer and some software, some keyboard gear, and I played guitar. And I got some guitar processing and I sang. I wasn't really confident as a lead singer at all at that time. I was still, I was always a background singer. Uh, But then I just kind of got my nerves together and decided to fun. And so it was March 15th, 1990, was my very first solo gig in Asbury Park at a place called Jim's Deck House. And so I put together like a set of stuff, you know, with all the background tracks programmed. I took like a year to put the tracks together. And I was really meticulous. I tried to get the drum fills exactly right. I didn't just loop stuff. Like each part of the song would have its own, the character off the record. I figured if the backgrounds were good enough, if I wasn't quite up to the game, you know, it would still sound good to the audience. You know? So that's where you put a lot of your energy. Yeah, into- although, although it was fun. The stuff that I've been programming lately, because I keep at it, I've always added it. But I found other avenues for it. Like I did the, the bars and things for a long time. I had a, a agent who booked me kind of really up and down Delaware, Pennsylvania, uh, Jersey, New York. Like, you know, it was good. But at one point I started, I played at this one bar and there were a bunch of school teachers who used to come see me. And one of them was a school band director, a middle school band director. He said, you know, this technology is great. I would love you to come in and do an assembly program for my students, like kind of explaining and teaching them this technology. And I was like, wait a minute, you want me to get up in front of like, a room full of seventh graders. So he said, basically it turned out, no, 500 of them. So that was even scarier. But what wound up happening was it went so well. I mean, I was a nervous wreck, you can imagine. That's that's different. And, and it's different in a different way. Like I wasn't as nervous playing with a band at Studio 54 as I was playing by myself in front of 500 seventh graders for the first time. Wow. And not what, even close. What was it, a performance or was it a performance and a description? Of well, that was the thing. I tried to turn it in. What, what I turned it into for him uh, was I did some workshops for the, the music kids during the day. And then the band room in that school abutted the auditorium stage, like backstage. So we kind of wheeled the stuff out there. And then at the end of the day, I would do a concert. So that turned into a whole other thing. So basically what I did starting around 1993, 94, I turned it into a business. And I think at the peak, I was doing about 80 schools a year. Fantastic. So that became your full-time gig for a while. It did. did for quite a long time. Yeah, pretty much up until... Uh, 2003 when I left New Jersey. That's a beautiful gig, man. Playing music, teaching kids. It really was. Like it was a good karma thing, you know. The only thing that was really hard, and I, I, and I can't overstate this, although it sounds like I'd be whining. Man, it is hard. Some of these schools would want you to do a show at like 7:45 in the morning. <laughs> and when you're a musician, like yeah. there's a reason shows aren't at 7:45. <laughs> the reason sporting events aren't at 7:45. Sure. In the morning. Like yeah. the human body's just not made for that. You no. Know? So, so that was a little rough. And sometimes, you know, I definitely have some sleepless nights. Like I got to get up at four 30 to get to like, I don't know, Schenectady or someplace yeah, like to yeah. you know, do a seven forty five show. Yeah. I'd be home in bed by 11 and 11 in the morning, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it was cool. It was great. And that afforded me the time to travel. That's when uh, my future wife, girlfriend at the time, we would travel every summer, go across the country. We could go to festivals. Nice. I could go to see fish, you know, like my whole life changed for the better once I got that independence. And so I think at that point, I really started to love the idea of being self-employed and self-sufficient. Yeah. Um, so then how did you, when you migrated West, did you take that model? Were you, did you then try to develop that in Albuquerque? I tried. Yeah. Yeah, I did try. Uh, the problem is though, uh, other than, first of all, New Mexico is a very poor state. I mean, really, really poor. It's probably, I think it's probably one of the five poorest states in the country. It's like right there with Mississippi and Alabama, you know, it's uh mm-hmm. You know, and it's really a beautiful, it's a beautiful place and it's got a whole different affect than those states have, Yeah, but it's, it's poor. So there really isn't money in the schools. And if the schools have money, they're spending it on like more important things, you know, that, I mean, so I, and people are way more spread out. Like once you get outside of Albuquerque for me to get the same, the same radius, that four hour radius that I put myself in inside of uh, New Jersey, I think I had like 10,000 schools here. There were about 400 in that radius. Yeah. So it just couldn't work. I, I ended up doing maybe three or four schools, but it wasn't enough to do it. Yeah. And then, so from then till now, you've evolved to where you're doing your live show and your your studio. And the recording studio, yep. Yeah. Um, and I taught. That's the other thing. I did a lot of, uh, I've taught lessons for a long time as well. Oh, right. Is that piano or guitar or mostly piano? 
a mostly piano here out here. I'm doing piano and guitar now. Yeah. And then you tell you have bumped into Todd lately. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know that I wouldn't be, you know, half the musician I am if I hadn't played in a band with him and those other guys at that time, because we really did push each other. We pushed each other in different directions. We made each other learn stuff that was out of our comfort zone. And who gets that in high school, you know, yeah. and not just to do it, to screw around, to go out and play and, and make money. And, you know, like I never had like a, a little job in high school, but like my band was my job. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Instead of Burger King, that's what I did. Yeah. It's cool. Well, cool, man. Just kind of wrapping up what's happening now out there. Kind of, it's always pleasant to go and reminisce about the good old days. And then it's like, okay, back to, back to here we are in the reality. And the reality is a little grim, unfortunately, right now. It's kind of interesting to just to talk to different people around the country. So in Albuquerque, how do you describe what's happening right now? Where are you guys at? There's a few bands that seem to be coming out and doing um, social distance shows. Yeah. Some people are, are streaming kind of like uh, uh, Green Sky Bluegrass is doing, doing our, putting archival stuff that they have up yeah. on the net. So if you were to think about what, like how we uh, as, a, as individuals come through this, what are you, what's your biggest concern and what do you think is kind of like those underlying gifts that this might bring us? Well, the underlying gift, as I think I said at the beginning, is hopefully people will be, become more aware and conscientious of, of how important human interaction, human interaction is and not be so device driven, you know, walk up, give your, hopefully there'll be more huggers, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and like I said, more people going out to see live music, more people taking advantage of just conversations at bars, you know, um, as far as the things I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of what it's going to look like when we all get back, because I mean, I'm lucky. You know, my, my wife is in education. She's still getting her full paycheck. You know, she's having to work her butt off to reconfigure their school for distance learning, that kind of thing. Um, I'm keeping most of my students. So I'm able to at least have like the cash part of my thing going, although the studio stuff is ground to a halt. And I'm just afraid at the number of businesses that when this is over, just haven't been able to ride it out. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of places that I can't wait to go back to that just aren't going to be there anymore. And I think everybody's going to have to refigure, you know, what we do and how we spend our time. And I mean, we're trying, like, I'm trying to buy my beer from the local breweries instead of getting it at the store. I'm trying to order my food from the local restaurants that I used to go to and pubs that are still open in their kitchens. But it, God, man, people with a, a staff and all, I, I don't, I don't think you can just all of a sudden reassemble your staff after they've been laid off for six months or whatever it's going to be. Right. Yeah. It's almost like every business is like a startup again. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, you think, well, the ones that probably were able to survive, it might be the ones that had a lot of extra cash on hand, which tend to be the bigger companies and the bigger. And so are we going to go back to, you know, everything being a chain and being a corporate run and having no identity because it's the little places that really give, especially a city like this, I mean, this, this city's got like a really weird undertone to it. Like it's quirky. It's like, like, like Austin used to be, you know, and the weirdness is what makes it such a cool place to be. And I'm really afraid the weirdness is going to, maybe not be able to come back. I don't know. Yeah. So what do we do to, um, as individuals, right. To, to bring it back in a way that's equitable and resilient and, um, a place we want to be. Well, I mean, it's one way I think is to do what I was talking about. Like if there's places that you really were frequenting and, and, and fans of try to throw some money their way. Certainly in terms of uh, artists, I mean, anybody who is posting stuff online, um, you know, go tip mightily, you know, I mean, I know one of my favorite places on earth, uh, we go, we vacation there for two or three weeks every year is Key West. And that's such a live music town. And we've made, we've been going there like for probably at least 20 years, like wow. every year for a long break. And I've gotten to know a lot of the musicians down there. And a lot of them are playing from their front porches and doing Facebook live shows. Yeah. And I'm just getting on demo and throwing them 15, 20 bucks. I mean, I wouldn't tip them that much if I was there, but right. they're getting paid by the venue there, you know? Yeah. But now it's like, it's whatever you can. Just, I would say anybody who you know that's small, whether it's your brewery or your distillery or whether it's uh, your restaurant or, you know, go, go spend some money. Go yeah. try and spend more than you can. And if there are servers there that are there bringing your food, you know, just, you know, tip them 25, 30, tip whatever you can. Just, you know, if you're lucky enough to be in a position, I don't know about you, but uh, my expenses have gone to almost nothing because I don't leave the house anymore. Right. Yeah. So even if I'm making a little less money, I've also been spending way much, way, way less. So, yeah. yeah. So just be really generous. And, and what I'm hoping maybe people will appreciate these places when they come back and just shower them with business and shower them with money and yeah. not sit home on the couch and watch, a, you know, American Idol. That's right. 
Well, cool, man. Anything else before we wrap up? Any thoughts you had that you didn't that we didn't get to? I, I think we're good. It's good to see you and catch up with you, man. Totally, you're man. Looking, it was... You're looking good. You look young. Like you've had a good life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm lucky. And I got a young young uh, daughter, so she keeps me young. Nice. Hell, dude. Yeah. yeah cool. Um, yeah, so we're doing good, man. We, uh, we, we're we happy up here. And Montpelier's, you know, the state of, of Vermont, certainly, like you mentioned, uh, New Mexico was kind of early to it. Um, mm-hmm. so we are, you know, we're in a good spot, but, um, it's, you know, it's kind of this opportunity to come together as people and, and live and kind of recreate this place that, that has that local feel. I mean, the local small business is at the heart of it, right? That's what we got to kind of there focus is. on rebuilding. Yeah. So perhaps an opportunity. Yep. And you know, what's cool too. I mean, people are, uh, one thing I gotta say, even though it's been harder to create in the way I used to create, be creative, like, you know, like set aside time and sit down and write a song. I think people are having to become more creative with the way they're living their lives right now, because every habit you used to have, probably nine tenths of those habits are no longer things you can do. So you got to come up with something. And the way that people are coming up with to fill the time and change things, maybe it's going to inspire some creativity in people. Once this is over, that's going to continue to, to exist. Absolutely. Only hope. Yeah. All right, brother. Take care. Yeah. We'll see you soon. Stay safe and healthy. All right. Sweet